How many of you would agree that to, um, to have a loved one, somebody that you really, really care about, go through a terrible time of suffering is worse than going through it yourself, right? It's Mother's Day. Moms, you know what I'm talking about, right? When, when your child is suffering, when your spouse is suffering, when your sibling is suffering, when somebody that really, really matters to you is going through a hard time, you know, and you can't do anything about it. It's just a horrible feeling to know that you can't fix the situation. And, and you know, all of us as parents have been through this. Recently in our, in our family, in the last couple of years, uh, you know, we went through about a, a three, four-year period with our youngest daughter where she was hospitalized constantly. One surgery after another after another. Doctors who have no idea what to do. Weeks spent in a hospital bed, and there's nothing you can do. And you, you, you try to get the best doctors, and you try to get the best care, and you try to get all the questions answered, and you spend all your time on WebMD, and you try to figure all this out. But when it comes right down to it, there was nothing I could do except sit in a hospital room and pray and cry and listen to the machines beep. And it's a horrible feeling. And, and in any one of those moments, I would have traded places with her in a heartbeat. It is tough to watch someone that you love suffering. That is the context we need to have in our minds as we think about what Paul was writing to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 3. We're in the series on Ephesians, and we've been reminding you week after week the context in which this is happening. Where is Paul as he's writing this letter? He's in prison, right? And he's been in jails all over the place. He has a rap sheet as long as your arm. Everywhere he goes, he gets arrested. But this time, it's different. This time, the word is that he's probably never coming out. This time, the belief is that he's probably going to be executed while he's there, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. It's actually the emperor himself who has declared that he will be there, and there is no higher authority. There is no one to cry out to. There's no one to appeal to. There's no lawyer who can get this fixed. This guy who I love is in prison, and there's nothing I can do about it. That was the reality for the Ephesian Christians. And he sends this letter to them from prison, and he gives them some context for some important truth that he's about to teach. So take your Bibles and open to the book of Ephesians, New Testament. Hopefully you should have a bookmarker there if you've been there here in the last few weeks, but go to the New Testament right after Galatians, before Philippians, find the book of Ephesians. And I want you to turn to chapter 3 of Ephesians. And we've already covered this, but I want to give you the background. So Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul introduces himself in this section of the letter, and he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. He, he describes himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He's not pretending that everything's going fine with him. In chapter 1, he opened up by saying that he was in prison. And now he's sending this letter out to all of us. And it's not just to the Ephesian church. It's to Christians everywhere. And he's saying, listen, I understand that you have heard about my situation. Now listen, to the Ephesians, Paul was their pastor. 
This is not just a traveling evangelist who came through town and then you got a prayer request that he had some problems. This is a guy who lived with them. He is a guy who discipled them. He is the one who stood up every Sunday morning and preached the word to them. He is the one who counseled with them. He is the one who baptized their children. He is the one who stood at the gravesides with them and wept. He was their brother. And now he's suffering. And there's nothing they can do about it except pray. He's in prison. They knew he's in real trouble. They're afraid he's not coming out. And there's nothing they can do. And he used this physical reality to illustrate the spiritual reality. He was not just a prisoner of Rome, which would be bad. But he was a prisoner of Christ, which is good. And he uses that illustration to help them understand about this this calling that God has on his life to, to reveal the mystery that Jesus came to save sinners. And that means all of us, not just the Jews. And he's been explaining this in chapter 3. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for anyone who will call upon the name of the Lord and believe. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. We covered this a couple weeks ago. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. He says, I know you're upset. I know you're shook up. I know you're having these prayer meetings and everybody's crying and nobody knows what to do because of my trials and tribulations, because of what I'm going through. But I'm telling you, don't lose heart because my suffering is good. My suffering is for your benefit. It's to your glory. Now, let me help you try to understand this. Let's say that um, you have a twin sister. And you've become very, very sick, and it's determined that what you need is an organ transplant. And your sister has the kidney that you need. And so because she's a match, she donates the kidney, and now you and your twin sister, the closest person in the world to you, are in the hospital together. And you have had the surgery, and you are recovering, and she's in the bed next to you recovering. And imagine what it feels like every time you hear her mourn, uh, moan or complain about the pain because you realize that the pain is for you. She doesn't have to be in this situation. She's going through this for you. And as things get worse for her, an infection begins to set in, and now she's in real trouble. And there you are getting stronger and stronger every day while she suffers more and more every day. I just want you to put yourself in that situation and imagine this, right? If you're a halfway decent person, it breaks your heart to know that your loved one is suffering for your benefit. But if you're the loved one, this is a no-brainer, right? You would do this for your sister. You would do this because you're the one that can help. And if you have to suffer in order to do it, that's fine. And by the way, that suffering that she's going through... How does the fact that she knows that her suffering is giving you life, how does that affect her suffering? It makes it a lot easier to bear, doesn't it? It changes it completely. It's still painful. It's still difficult. But it's accomplishing something great. You know, Mother's Day, I can't help but think about my mom. I can't help but think about my wife and the the mother that she is to our children. And I think about watching these two moms that I've had the privilege of watching closely over the years, and just watching how the life of a good mother is a life of continual selflessness. 
And, and I remember a time when our children were really, really little. And, and we're, we're grappling with the question of, you know, how does God want us to see to their education? And we felt like God was calling us to homeschool our kids. Now, you got to understand something. My wife is brilliant and talented, has a degree from a major university, was already working her way up and had been successful in her career, which she loved. And yet, God was calling us to homeschool our kids, which meant the, the career goes on hold, all of those things that sort of make her tick in the adult world go on hold, and she begins to make her life about coloring pages and ABCs and multiplication tables. And I watched her year after year after year realize that she had put something aside in order to do something for our kids that is benefiting them even today. And that's what people do when they love somebody. They're willing to go through difficulty and even put off their own blessings in order to take care of the people they need to take care of. And she was glad to do it. I guarantee you there were days when she was thinking to herself, not only do I wish I had not decided to homeschool, but I wish I decided not to have children. I wish I never married that guy. That's probably what she was thinking, right? But overall, if you ask her today, she would say, you know what? I am so glad that I answered God's call and was willing to make a sacrifice. Paul is saying, hey, listen, Ephesians, I know you're upset about this, but get your chin up. Don't let this devastate you. My suffering is a good thing. Don't lose heart. Don't be sad. Don't be discouraged. Don't be depressed. This is all for you. This is for your benefit, and therefore, it brings me joy to be able to suffer. You are reaping an amazing harvest because of my suffering. And by the way, this suffering, says Paul, is not all for your sake, because I'm a prisoner of who? Christ, I'm doing this for him, the one who suffered for me, the one who paid the price so that I could be free. I'm suffering for him, and it brings me glory, it brings me joy to know that I can suffer for him. Do you think that thinking about his suffering that way made a difference in how easy it was to endure his suffering? I guarantee you it did. I guarantee you it did. Turn to 2 Corinthians. I want you to go back just a couple books to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, we've looked at um, 2 Corinthians multiple times in this series, and 2 Corinthians is the book that um, Paul just complains constantly in this book. He's always saying, my life is difficult, I'm going through this, it's really hard to be me, and you just read his writing, and you're like, wow, Paul, come on. And yet, he keeps coming to these verses where he goes, but let me put this in perspective for you. And last week, um, when Byron was sharing the Word of God, he, he came to this passage, this very same passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. And I was sitting right there taking notes and listening to him preach and growing and feeding on the word as he was sharing it with us. And I, and I was thinking as I was looking at this passage, having already prepared my sermon for this week, I was thinking, that dirtbag stole my passage. <laughs> I know I should have been thinking something more godly. The other thing I was thinking is, you know what? You try to get preachers to take your place who are not as good as you, so they'll be glad when you come back. And I was mad about that too. So I was in a bad place, just like Paul, and I saw this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, let's look at it again, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, 
But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Momentary light affliction. And Byron talked about this at length last week. I'm not going to get into it that much, but let's just remember what he's calling momentary light affliction. Scourging, beaten, beaten multiple times with clubs, chained up and put in stocks in a dungeon, um, thrown out of every town that he went into, his friends killed and taken away and dragged off. Over and over and over again, these things happen in his life. He is sitting in prison, and he thinks momentary light affliction. This momentary light affliction is producing an eternal weight of glory far beyond our, all comparison. Now, if, if you read that, knowing how much he's suffered, you would say either this guy is delusional or he's being sarcastic or something, but he's not. He actually considers that kind of suffering to be momentary and light. You know why? Look at verse 17 or verse 18. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. What's he saying? It's a matter of getting it right in your perspective. I want you to think about two different but similar scenarios. Here's the first one. Imagine that you have gone to Africa by yourself as a missionary for the summer, and uh, you, you're, you're new there. You don't know much about what's going on. There's a little bit of um, political upheaval in the country that you're in, and you go off to the market to get some supplies, and while you're on the way to the market, you make a wrong turn, you end up in a neighborhood you shouldn't be in, and you don't know your way around. The next thing you know, you're being arrested, and you're being dragged off. You are being charged and convicted with a crime you did not commit. You do not have a lawyer. You do not have um, a trial. You are simply thrown into prison. You say, well, that doesn't happen. Yes, it does, almost everywhere but America, okay? And so that happens to you, and you find yourself that the State Department doesn't know where you are, your family doesn't know where you are, nobody has any idea, but you are now living in a prison. And every day you go to sleep on a damp dirt floor, all so that you can wake up at 5.30 in the morning, and you have to go into the kitchen, and your job is to cook breakfast for the guards who mistreat you on a daily basis. That's scenario number one. Scenario number two is like it, but different. In scenario number two, you've just married the love of your life. You're on your honeymoon. You can't take your eyes off this person. You can't believe how blessed you are to be in this relationship, that this person actually loves you enough to marry you. And there you are, you've rented a condo on the beach somewhere where it's sunny, and you've got a week there. And at 5.30 in the morning, while your spouse snores, you get up out of bed, go down into the kitchen, and begin to prepare a surprise breakfast. It is the food that they love the most, and you are preparing it for them. You don't even like it. You're not even going to eat it. It's just for them. Now, it's really the same story, isn't it? You got up early in the morning and went and cooked food for somebody other than yourself. It's the exact same story. What's the difference? Who you're serving and what your attitude is toward them, right? 
Your perspective is the difference. And do you think it would make any difference to you if you were that honeymoon person and you're off doing this for the love of your life compared to if you're doing it for your captors and persecutors? It makes all the difference in the world, right? Your heart attitude makes all the difference in the world. Not much really changed. The only thing that's different is your attitude. You're doing it for somebody you love. It's an act of kindness. It's an act of love. It's not an act of compulsion. Now, just imagine if somehow you could see your time in in the prison kitchen the same way as you see your time in the honeymoon cottage. What a difference that would make. Perspective makes a huge difference. Let me show you what I mean. Have you seen this picture before? Is he looking forward or is he looking sideways? Raise your hand if you think he's looking forward. Okay? Hands down. Raise your hand if you think he's looking sideways. Okay? All right. Forward people, raise your hands again. All right? So if you're a forward person, here's what I want you to do. Take a look at the tip of his nose and just stare at the picture that way. You see it now? Okay? Now, if you're a person who thinks he's looking sideways, I want you to look at his left shoulder and trap there around his neck. You see him now looking sideways or looking forward? Right? It's one picture. What is it? It's a matter of perspective. Guys, life is like this. Take that picture down because they're going to go. <laughs> I want them listening. Okay? Life is like this. I'm not talking about psychological manipulation. I'm not talking about little mind tricks that you play with yourself. I am talking about reality. Every single one of us is dealing with difficulty. You may be in worse shape this week than you were last week, or you may be whistling a happy tune this week, but next week is going to be difficult. All of us at one time or another, multiple times throughout our lives, have to deal with stuff that we are not equipped to deal with, and it just comes down to suffering, right? Every one of us. How is it that there are some people, and you know these people, there are some people who when they go through a tremendous trial, they grow from it, and and their joy never seems to be taken away. And yet there are other people who go through a similar trial and they're knocked flat on their back and devastated by it. There's no difference in the trial. The difference is in the heart of the person going through the trial and the perspective that we choose to take. Paul says, this is actually momentary light affliction for me. You know why? Because I have an eternal perspective. And I understand that in light of eternity, this really is no big deal. Now turn back to Ephesians chapter 3 again. With all of that in background, we're going to begin in verse 14. For this reason, and let me just stop there. You know how when there's a therefore, we're supposed to ask, what's it therefore? When you see for this reason, you're supposed to ask, for what reason? Okay? It's the same thing. He doesn't say that for no reason. He says it for a reason. So the question is, what reason? What's he talking about? And what he's talking about is what I have spent the last 20 minutes setting you up for. He is talking about this perspective, this understanding that I belong to God and because of my suffering, I'm able to deliver the gospel to the Gentiles and break down the wall between Jew and Gentile and introduce people to Jesus Christ and give them eternal life through Christ because of the gospel. 
And with that in mind, for this reason, he says, I bow my knees before the Father. I want you to think of something. Just as those Ephesian Christians can't do anything about Paul's situation, because he's in prison, he can't do much for them either, right? Because he's in prison. I mean, what could he possibly, in that prison cell, do for the Ephesians? I mean, what could he possibly do? He could write the book of Ephesians, which is exactly what he did, because his perspective was always this, wherever I am, whatever I'm going through, I live to be pleasing to God, and from this prison cell, what can I do today that is pleasing to God? I don't even have anything here but a parchment, an inkwell, and a little pen. What could I possibly do? I guess I could write the New Testament and be pleasing to God and make my life count for something. Was I reading a verse? Yeah, I was reading a verse, right? Okay, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. That's what he could do. He could pray from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. He's praying. He's praying for them. He's praying for the church everywhere. He's praying for us. And what is he praying for? These things. That they'd be strengthened, that they would be um, spiritually strengthened. He's praying that they would really know the love of Christ. And he's praying that they would be filled up to the fullness of God. That's his prayer. These three things. It's so interesting to think about what he's praying for because think about the things that we usually pray for. If we're praying for ourselves, we always seem to be praying for God to provide something. Oh, Lord, I need wisdom. Oh, Lord, I need money. Oh, Lord, I need a job. Oh, Lord, I need healing. Oh, Lord, I need, I need. And is it okay to pray to God for the things you need? Not only is it okay, it's commanded. So I don't want you to get the wrong idea that somehow it's wrong to cry out to God and say, oh, God, I need you to take care of me. I need you to fill me. I need you to meet my needs that I can't need, meet for myself. Of course you should be praying that. But when you consider the percentage of the time most of us cry out to God asking him to do stuff for us, what is Paul praying for for us? That we'd be spiritually strengthened, that we'd really know the love of Christ, that we'd be filled to the fullness of God. Strengthened, he says, in the inner man. I'm praying that you will be strengthened in the inner man. Look at verse 16 again. That, you would, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. What a great way to pray. Even when we pray for other people, what are we usually praying for? God would lighten their burden, right? That God would take away the pain. That God would help them with the problem. But it's interesting, he didn't choose to pray that for us. At least not in this prayer. What did he pray for? That we would be strengthened. Does it ever occur to us that instead of always asking God to take away the difficulty, maybe we ought to be asking him to build us up so that we could bear the burden and become stronger in the process? Paul was not praying that our burdens would be removed. He was praying that we would find strength in Christ to bear them. 
I want you to go again to uh, 2 Corinthians. And this time I want you to go to chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. Paul is talking here about the fact that he has been privileged that God has made him a prophet. And as a prophet, he has seen certain revelations of heaven that other people have not seen. And he's talking about that. And in verse 7, he says this, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. He's given a thorn in the flesh. It's a messenger of Satan. And we have no idea whether it's a literal thorn in his literal flesh or whether it's metaphorical and he's talking about some problem that he has that is just dogging him that no matter how much he cries out to God, it doesn't get taken away. But it's fascinating to look at what he says. He, he says, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. It was a gift. Have you ever thought of that? It was given. It's a gift. And you say, oh, pastor, I think you finally messed this one up because this is not a gift from God. Look what it says, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And you're right. Does, does Satan actually attack Christians? Yeah, all the time, right? We, we get tormented. There's spiritual warfare. There's spiritual darkness that we face. Satan attacks all the time, right? And yet it's called a gift that was given to him this torment of Satan. And what does this remind us? It reminds us who's in charge. God has give Satan, given Satan a certain amount of authority and allowed him to take some shots at the people that God loves the most. And yet, even in that suffering, God says, here's a gift. I'm going to use that suffering in your life to turn you into the person that I want you to be so you can live the abundant life that I want you to to live. And why was it given to him? To keep him from exalting himself. <laughs> Paul's basically saying, look, I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm kind of a big deal. And, and he knows this about himself, and God knows that he knows this, and God says, easy there. Let's not get too full of ourselves. Let's remember who this is all about. Let's remember who you're dependent upon for everything. So he says in verse 8, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. You guys underline that in your Bibles. His grace is sufficient for us. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's perspective. I, I, I cried out, God, take it away, take it away, take it away. And God said, no, I'm going to give you something better. I'm going to walk you through the burden and help you become the person that I want you to become. So if you're struggling today, if you find that there is something or maybe some things that just keep dogging you in your life, blame Paul. Because this is what he prayed for for us. 
that we'd be strengthened in the inner man. But, you know, full disclosure, you can also blame me. Because of all the things that I pray for in all of your lives, this is the thing I most consistently pray for. That God would build you up in the inner man and make you the person that he wants you to be. And sometimes, oftentimes, that comes through struggle. Let me ask you to think about this. Is it possible that in your struggle to get free from the suffering that you're going through, you're missing out on the growth that God's trying to give you through the struggle? Every good parent knows this. Every good parent knows that a spoiled child is a weakened child, right? And a terrible adult one day, right? This is important for us to remember. If you're a young parent raising little kids, let me just remind you of this. This is so key, I think, to parenting. We got to get our parenting philosophy right. Your goal as a parent is not to make sure that little Johnny doesn't make noise in the restaurant. That's not your goal. Your goal as a parent is not to make sure that little Susie always keeps her room clean. That is not your goal. Your goal as a parent is not to keep your children from killing each other when they fight in the bedroom. That's not your goal. Your goal as a parent is is this, to build righteous adults. That's it. That's why God gives children adults to parent them. But we all know that if we spoil them... And if we take away every burden, they will never become those mature adults. Your kids don't want to do their chores, right? Your kids don't want to do their homework, right? But do you make them do it anyways? You must not love your kids. No, on the contrary, you do love them, so you make them bear the burden that they are able to bear with your support so that they can become the people they're intended to be. How do you need to be strengthened? You need to be strengthened in the inner man. Too often we make the mistake of trying to strengthen ourselves by changing ourselves on the outside. And listen, transformation only comes from the inside out and it only comes from God. I want to show you something. Um, I brought with me a couple of these, oranges. What kind of oranges? Naval oranges. Why are they called naval oranges? Because they have belly buttons, right? This one is more of an innie, this one's more of an outie kind of, but anyways, naval oranges. Maybe you already know this, but I learned this this week. Do you know that naval oranges don't naturally occur? They're a genetic mutation. 200 years ago, there were no naval oranges on planet Earth. The best that they know, I have a PhD in horticulture, so I'll just explain this to you. (laughs) To the best that we PhDs know, um, uh, it was about 200 years ago in a monastery that the first naval orange appeared on a tree. And it appeared, and they looked at it and said, that's different. What's up with that? And they cut it open, and they found out something else was different about that orange. And that is what? No seeds. Naval oranges have no seeds, which is kind of cool if you like fruit without seeds, right? But it's kind of a bummer if you want to have an orchard of naval oranges, right? You can't. 
They don't naturally occur, except for those monks. They figured it out. They took a branch from the tree that bore that navel orange. They cut that branch. They put a notch in another tree. They grafted it in, wrapped it up. And you know what happened? Every piece of fruit above that branch became a navel orange the next year. And that's why we have navel oranges today. The change had to take place in the tree, on the inside, in order for the fruit to be different. And we get it backwards. We think, I'm going to start changing the fruit in my life. Boy, I'm going to put rules in my life. I'm going to put disciplines in my life. And when I do, I'm going to be righteous. No, you're not. You're going to be frustrated. You're going to be legalistic. You're going to be hypocritical. You know, a lot of us, we go, you know what? I would love to have an orange tree in my backyard, but all I have is an oak tree. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take some fishing line and tie it in here, and I'm going to just hang oranges on my oak tree. <laughs> then I'm going to look out the window every day and go, look, I have an orange tree. No, you don't. You have oranges, but you don't have an orange tree. And there's a whole bunch of people naming the name of Jesus who are walking around going, hey, everybody, I'm an orange tree. And you know what they're doing? Laughing. Tying some oranges to the tree don't make it an orange tree. Cleaning up your language doesn't make you a godly man. Putting rules in your life about what movies you will see does not make you a godly woman. That has to happen from the inside. And then the fruit changes as a result of the fact that your heart has changed. Paul is praying that we'll be transformed in the inner man. There's a second thing he's praying for. He's praying that we would know the love of Christ. Look back at Ephesians chapter 3, pick it up in verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to the fullness of God, that you would know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you would know what cannot be known, he says. It surpasses knowledge. The word for knowledge there means intellectual knowledge. Nobody understands the whole depth of the love of Jesus Christ. Nobody. But there's a bunch of people. I know that you could ask a lot of Christians, and they would be, and you say, does God love? And they would say, oh, yes, God loves. Let me tell you about the love of God. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he blah, 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 right? I know it. I've got the doctrine down. I understand the love of God. But they don't know it in their hearts. It's that 18-inch journey that gets us all mixed up from our head to our hearts. And if it doesn't make that journey, you don't know anything. And he's saying, I'm praying that you'll know it, that you'll experientially know God's love, that you will experience it for yourself. Listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. If you don't get anything else today, get this. There is a lot of suffering in the world and sometimes it touches our lives. But the God of the universe loves you. 
There are many things that you cannot control and you sure wish you could. But the God of the universe loves you. You may be struggling in your job, but the God of the universe loves you. You may have stressed relationships, but the God of the universe loves you. You may have a lot of scars on your heart from a lot of abuse and a lot of junk that you have been through, but let me tell you something. You can never judge God based on your circumstances. You have to judge your circumstances based on what's true about God. Let me tell you what's true about God. The God of the universe loves you. That's the truth. Oh, how we need to know it. I don't want to minimize the reality of your struggles. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. But there is one thing that I want you to always know. The God of the universe, the all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign, all-loving God of the universe loves you, and he's proven it. And when you look at your circumstances and you go, but I, I look at these circumstances, he must not love me. Guys, get your eyes off the circumstances and get them on the cross. That's where the questions are answered. Does he love you? Yes, it's proven. And the rest of this, as difficult as it may be in light of eternity, is a momentary light affliction. Third thing that Paul prayed for us is that we be filled to the fullness of God. Christianity is not a halfway thing. God is not interested in part-time Christians. And too many of us are trying to do it in a way that it cannot be done. Too many of us have one foot firmly planted in the world and another foot firmly planted in Jesus and we're walking along the fence like this and getting absolutely nowhere because life cannot be lived like that. What I'm about to say, I'm afraid to say because you may take me up on it. If you're not going to get serious about Jesus, stop pretending. You're just going to drive yourself nuts. Stop doing the I'm going to do this halfway thing. Listen, Jesus either has the right to be Lord of your life or he should be a byword. And I'm convinced he should be Lord of your life. Oh, that the world would see some Christians where Jesus is not just an addendum to a life that's about them, but where their whole life is about Jesus and everything comes forth from that. What a difference that would make. He is praying that we would be filled up to the fullness of God. If I had a, if I had a, if you ever pour like a glass of water and, and the pitcher's almost empty and you're like, well, I might as well just get it all in there and you're just sort of pouring it real slow because it's getting right up to the top. And it, you can even get to the point where it has like a little, little mound over the top of water. It's like, man, don't anybody touch this. There's not room for one more drop. You put one more drop, it will overflow. That's what that... That's a Greek word means filled, filled with the fullness. Now, if you're holding a glass like that and somebody comes around a corner and smashes into you, what's going to happen? It's going to spill all over the person. He says we're supposed to be filled with the fullness of God so that when somebody smacks into you, God gets all over them. That's the picture he has in mind. 
And he's praying that we would somehow be filled to the fullness of God. That's his prayer for us. That's my prayer for us too. That we'll be strengthened in the inner man. That we would know the depth and the height and the breadth and the width of the love of God. And that we'd be filled to the fullness of God. Imagine. Imagine what could happen if just the people in this room began to have that take place in their lives. Just those three things. Imagine what would happen in your life. Your life would never be the same. This church would never be the same. This community would never be the same, and the world would never be the same. If God would move, and we would accept His movement to do these three things in our lives, the whole world would be transformed. And, and I'll, I'll close with this. I wish I had a dollar for every time in the last two weeks somebody has wanted to get my opinion about the political race. Or actually give me their opinion. And I, I'm not going to ever tell you guys who to vote for, so I'm not going to do that. But here's what I will say. There's a bunch of people scratching their heads going, how do we get to this situation? What are we going to do? Who is going to deliver our nation? Maybe we, the church, ought to forget the idea that somebody's going to ride into Washington and change the nation from the White House, and maybe we ought to get back to the biblical truth that says God has placed his church in this culture to change the world. That's what we're here for. Do we need to be afraid about who the political leaders are going to be? No. What we need to do is get serious about being the church. You show me a church where those three prayers are answered in so many of our lives, I will show you a world that knows exactly who to elect as president. That's the least of our concerns. If God's going to change the world, he's going to do it through a transformed church. And I, for one, am up for that. How about you? Let's pray together. Let's stand. We'll pray.